Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number six. Oops, I have the wrong number and date on the slide. Oh, well, this is session number six. Don't believe what you see of Till We Have Faces. Um, and uh, today we're going to talk about chapters 10 and 11 of Till We Have Faces. We ended with the cliffhanger last time. Uh, that is Orowal seeing Psyche across the stream uh, in the Valley of the Gods that Bardia and Orowal had climbed to. The thing I want to remind folks of um, before we begin, I, uh, I titled the class today, Why Should Our Hearts Not Dance? Both because we're going to be reminded of that early on, um, but for that reason, I want to make sure that we're recalling. Um, we were looking in the chapters that came before, after Psyche was sent away, after Psyche had been sacrificed, which Orwell missed because she collapsed and was ill and injured. Um, and took a long time to recover. Um, and um, uh, anyway, so she, um, uh, we were looking at the different kinds of comfort that she was offered, essentially. Um, the comfort of Gloam, the comfort of, uh, of, of the fox, uh, and the comfort of the mountain as she was going up. And we were looking at the way in which she herself was transported by the beauty of the mountain as she went up into the mountain and she felt the impulse of her heart to dance and she sternly resisted it. Um, she made the very distinct choice um, to resist the impulse of delight, the impulse of joy as she was going up into the mountain. Um, now, uh, let us uh, let us resume um, I, I was just mentioning right before I started class, um, uh, <laughs> we're going to be talking about a lot of the text. I couldn't really bear to skip much of chapters 10 and 11. Um, so we're going to be doing a good deal of these two chapters because I think this is this is some of the most pivotal stuff in the entire book. There will be other parts of the book a little bit later, which we will go through more swiftly, I think. Um, but I think it's really important for us to see what's going on here. This is absolutely critical uh, to the entire story. All right. Um, Bardia's reaction when he sees Psyche. Careful, lady. It may be her wraith. It may... I, I. It is the bride of the god. It is a goddess. He was deadly white and bending down to the earth and bending down to throw earth on his forehead. You could not blame him. She was so bright-faced, as we say in Greek. But I felt no holy fear. What? I, to fear the very Psyche, whom I had carried in my arms and taught to speak and to walk? She was tanned by sun and wind and clothed in rags, but laughing. Her eyes like two stars, her limbs smooth and rounded, and, but for the rags, no sign of beggary or hardship about her. Welcome, 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 she was saying. Oh, Maya, I have longed for this. It was my only longing. I knew you would come. Oh, how happy I am. And good Bardia, too. It was he that brought you? Of course, I might have guessed it. Come, Orawal, you must cross the stream. I'll show you where it's easiest. But, Bardia, I can't bid you across. Dear Bardia, it's not... No, no, blessed Istra, said Bardia. And I thought he was very relieved. 
Yes, the uh, putting earth on your forehead. Remember, that's uh, also what some of the peasants were doing. Remember, that's what um, what Redival originally saw one of the one of the peasants in the town doing, right? Bowing down and putting dust on her head um, uh, before uh, before Psyche, right? Worshiping her as a goddess. Um, yeah, sign of humility. Um, Yes. So you'll remember at the very end of chapter nine, right before Psyche appeared, they were looking down into the valley that has opened up here. So they've gone over the sort of saddle um, in the uh, in the in, in the mountain. Right. And they found this valley, which is invisible from beyond. Right. And this is up behind the tree. Keep in mind, right? We were told, Bardia was telling her, nobody goes up here, right? Even the priests don't go any further than the tree. So they're already, Bardia's already uneasy because they're sort of transgressing onto holy ground. And then they find the stream and the valley, which is gorgeous and luscious down in the, you know, and, and richer and more fertile than anything um, that uh, that Orowal has ever seen. And um, uh, yeah, so he... Bardia has no question that he is unworthy to cross the stream and enter the Valley of the Gods, right? This is holy ground. And he questions, I did skip that part. He, he, he's, he's about to question Orowal, um, to caution her and to ask if she is in fact going to dare to go with a certain amount of awe. But then he's going to say she is the blood of the gods. It's different for her. Right. She is just in a different in a different category from him. Um, and yes, Bardia is clear about the the gap between mortal and divine that he, um, as a plain man and a soldier, has no place here. Right. Um, he should not go there. He feels very certain about that. Um, uh, but she, Orwell, is invited. Invited by Psyche. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Right? Um, notice from the start, she is, Orwell is struck by Psyche's health. Um, but her first impression is of more than just health. She was bright face, right? Um, paraphrasing a Greek word. I don't know the Greek word that she is uh, quoting, but it's a, it's a, a Greek word, apparently, a Greek word that doesn't translate directly into uh, uh, into the, the the Glomish language or into English, presumably. Um, but you'll remember the story of Anchises and Aphrodite, and when she appeared in the glory, right? Um, and that seems to be something like what she is describing here. Right. And again, um, Bardia's reaction is appropriate to that. Anchises' reaction was more extreme because he realized that he had lain with a goddess. Right. Um, that there had been on his part, in that sense, a profound and shocking transgression that he thought would destroy him. Right. When she was revealed in her glory. Bardia is safer than that. Right. He's still on the other side. Um, um Yes, but uh, good. Uh, yeah, Sharon and Bricktails are thinking about Moses and his face glowing. Yes, yes, that um, Moses' face was glowing with the reflected glory of God. Right when he had been, sh when God revealed Himself partially to Moses on the mountain top, um, 
and uh, that does seem well to remember um, in um, uh, in this uh, in this instance. Um, okay, more. We'll keep going. A little. So this is crossing the stream. A little further up, Orowald, Psyche was saying, here's the best ford. Go straight ahead off that big stone. Gently, make your footing sure. No, not to your left. It's very deep in places. This way. Now, one step more. Reach out for my hand. I suppose the long bedridden and indoors time of my sickness had softened me. Anyhow, the coldness of that water shocked all the breath out of me, and the current was so strong that, but for Psyche's hand, I think it would have knocked me down and rolled me under. I even thought momentarily amid a thousand other things. How strong she grows. She'll be a stronger woman than ever I was. She'll have that as well as her beauty. Okay, there's uh, several things that I want to, um, that I want to emphasize here. Um, let's hang on for a second to the, um, uh, to the, the, the last line. First, I want to, I mentioned it the last time, and I'm not going to talk about this too much because there is session upon session. We could, and perhaps someday we will, um, do a whole, you know, multi-session discussion on the poem Pearl. Um, but Pearl, uh, I mentioned Pearl last time, that that's a really important um, uh, sort of uh cross-reference in this section. Um, let me just give a very brief outline so that you know what I'm talking about if you haven't read it. Um, and it is available, I recommend, if you can, reading it in Tolkien's translation, because um, that's fun. Um, so, uh, Pearl. Pearl is a dream vision poem told, narrated by a man who is um, weeping at the grave of his daughter, um, who it's revealed his daughter died when she was two. Um, and he's come to her grave site and he's weeping and he collapses onto her grave and falls asleep and has a dream. And in his dream, he wakes up and he walks through the woods and finds himself at a stream. And on the other side of the stream is his daughter. That's Pearl. Um, and he um, has a conversation with his daughter, Pearl, across the stream. They, he can't reach her. He can't embrace her. Um, but he sees her in glory. And um, she talks about... She talks about lots of things. But, um, but there's, um, there's a gap. There's always a gap. But there's a physical gap between them in the stream. And there is a... Uh, spiritual gap she's teaching him throughout as he is still distraught he is still mourning and she sees things from a very different perspective because she sees things now from a heavenly perspective and she um wants him to be happy for her um and he struggles with that in the end he um uh he gives up he can't resist any further, and he tries to leap across the stream and come to her. And as he does, as he leaps over to come, he wakes up um, and finds that it was a dream. Uh, it's a really, really powerful reflection. It's one of the... Um, I have sometimes heard scholars say that 
Um, I'm not even kidding. I've heard them say that medieval parents didn't love their children nearly as much as modern people did. I actually heard scholars say this with on the basis that, of course, infant mortality and, and child mortality was so much more common back then that it was sort of accepted as a matter of course. And, um, you know, they weren't like as upset about that kind of thing, um, to which I always want to say, you've never read Pearl, have you? Um, but um, anyway, uh, so. One of the reasons why this is an important thing to keep in mind is that when we that the tableau that we get at the end of chapter nine, the tableau of Orowal and Psyche, um, after Psyche, as far as Orowal knows, has died, right? And seeing this what this vision of Psyche um, across the stream, right, with the stream in between them, um, we it, it the the parallel with Pearl lays upon the text certain expectations, right? We get certain promptings. One, a doubt, a question. Has Psyche died? Is this a vision? Is Orwell dreaming? Is this real? Right? That question, is this real? Um, or is this just a vision? Um, is something that, again, we, even before it comes up in the text, it's already kind of a pressure in the backs of our minds if we recognize the parallel to Pearl. Um, and the other thing, of course, is the separation, the gulf between the two of them, the gulf which in Pearl is uncrossable. So one of the first things that happens in Chapter 10 is that Orowal is brought across the stream. And that's a bit of a surprise, right? That goes against the expectation that the parallel with Pearl establishes, especially since it's, it's, it's made pretty clear over the course of the Pearl poem um, that... Um, uh, that the river is death, right? Symbolically, it represents death, um, and that's why he can't cross it, not yet, uh, to be with his daughter. Um, but um, uh, uh, and but Orwell crosses the stream, but notice that it's very difficult across the stream. This is not an insignificant obstacle. Um, and again, we're reminded this is something that is possible for Orwell, but Bardia believes that it would not be possible for him, right? Um, we get this sense of the difficulty of the crossing, of the real chance that Orwell could be swept away or drowned uh, as she crosses. Remember, this quite difficult crossing this is the easiest place to cross, right? Psyche has led her to the easiest place, and the easiest place is not easy. Um, there is a risk here. Um, there, is a, there is a chance of death. There is something death-like, and it's clearly not death. It doesn't symbolize death in the same way as it does in Pearl. But it's, um, it is a very difficult path that she has to cross here um, in, order to, uh, uh, in order to get to Psyche. Um, it like entering fairy? Yep, yep. There's um, no. There's a lot of resonances here. Um, you might think of the river Styx. You might think of baptism. You might think of entering fairy. You might think of the crossing of the Red Sea. All of those things, I think, are relevant here, in different ways. Um, now, uh, the 
The other thing that I wanted to emphasize here is, again, the current was so strong that but for Psyche's hand, I think it would have knocked me down and rolled me under. It is only Psyche's hand that brings Orowal across the stream. Um, uh, but notice the thought that creeps into Orowal's head here. How strong she grows. She'll be a stronger woman than ever I was. She'll have that as well as her beauty. It's a brief thought, right? Just a flash across the mind. But, um, uh, but dark and revealing, right? Remember the king's sort of jibe. Remember the king's total lack of comprehension of Orowal's love for Psyche, right? He didn't get it at all, right? How, because in his mind, he was like, look, this is obvious. How could, why would one, why would a, a, a girl love her half-sister this much. There must be something else to this, right? Especially when the one sister is hideously ugly and her younger half-sister is, like, the most beautiful woman in the land, right? Um, obviously, the king assumes envy is going to be the activating force there. Now, last time we were looking at Psyche's jealousy. Uh, sorry, Orwell's jealousy of Psyche, right? Her, uh, her, her possessive love of Psyche. Um, we do see that there is just a touch of envy there as well, right? She has never grudged Psyche her beauty. The king is quite wrong about that. And yet, we see a glimpse here, right? Um, she didn't grudge Psyche her beauty, but she had something else. She, Orowal, had something else, right? She was the strong one physically strong one. She was the one whom Psyche depended on. She was the one who cared for Psyche, who protected Psyche. She's the strong one, right? Psyche needed her. And now, if Psyche is going to grow and be stronger than she, Psyche won't need her anymore, right? And the she'll have that as well as her beauty. Um, I will have nothing to give to her anymore. She'll be greater than me in every, um, uh, in every dimension. Um, yes, Sarah, I agree. Very hard to feel not needed. Yes. And we can see that very sharply there in that moment. And here it comes very early in their conversation. But, Psyche, we must be serious. Yes, and busy, too. How have you lived? How did you escape? And, oh, we mustn't let the joy of the moment put it out of our minds. What are we to do now? Do? Why be merry? What else? Why should our hearts not dance? They do dance. Do you not think? Why, I could forgive the gods themselves. I'll shortly be able to forgive Redival, perhaps. But how can... It will be winter in a month or less. You can't... Psyche, how have you kept alive till now? I thought... I thought, but to think of what I had thought overcame me. Orowal barely notices when Psyche asks the very question that had been in her heart on the way up the mountain. The thing that her, that her heart kept saying to her was, 
why should our hearts, you know, why should my heart not dance? And now Psyche, and, and remember, she rejected that. She couldn't do that. She wouldn't do that. Um, and now, what are we to do now? And the answer to the question is, be merry. What else? Why should our hearts not dance? She had an answer to that question before, right? Because Psyche was dead. How could she um, take delight in anything? Um, just because the, you know, the world was turning her uh, briefly a fair face, right? Um, when she knew its cruelty, um, how was she to be taken in so easily, right? Remember, she was comparing that to a, uh, to a, a, a man who had been deceived by his doxy and caught her cheating on him multiple times, believing her when she promises again that she was going to be faithful, right? Um, for her to have positively responded to that impulse to let her heart dance would have been being as great a fool as that, right? And yet, now, the very thing that she was using to resist that, the very reason she had not to let her heart dance, has been undone. Psyche's alive. She's reunited with Psyche. Why should her heart not dance? Why should she not let herself be merry? And you see, she sees it, right? They do dance. Our hearts do dance. Do you not think why I could forgive the gods themselves? I'll shortly be able to forgive Redival, perhaps, right? Um, she still is resistant. And, and you see, it's not totally different from before. She begins and ends this little exchange I've put up here with her concerns about the, how have you lived, right? How have you kept alive till now is how she begins and how she ends this, right? The reason now to keep her heart from dancing is distrust, the same kind of distrust. Okay, so, yes, the world is turning an even brighter face towards her at this moment, right? This seems, you know, this seems like an even greater thing. In fact, really, the thing that she was hoping for above all other things. But even when that has happened, she can't trust it, right? There's, it's going to take it away from us again. Remember her references in the very first page about how the gods have already taken away everything that she, that she so it doesn't matter anymore, right? There's a kind of fear here. Um, what are we to do now? What are we to do now? Um, how can we keep from losing this? She immediately is uh, is thinking about. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Jocelyn, I agree. It is a different thing to ask why should our hearts not dance? What reason is there against it? Why should our hearts not dance? And to assert our hearts should dance or to say, let our hearts dance. Yeah. And the difference, Jocelyn, is in the will. There's a choice to be made, right? To say, why should our hearts not dance is to acknowledge the situation. To then say, let our hearts dance 
is to make a choice, is to respond to the situation, to respond to the, the, um, the perception that leads to the question, why should our hearts not dance, is an invitation. But it's an invitation that has to be accepted, right? Um, there are several places early in the conversation when we begin to see the gap between them, uh, when it begins to become more and more visible to us. That, of course, is one of the crushing ironies of chapter 10. Um, chapter 10 begins with her going across the stream, right? Fulfilling the dream of the pearl poet, right? Um, you know, the speaker of the pearl poet, of, of the pearl poem. Um, to cross the stream and to reunite with the one that she thought dead, to hold her in her arms, to, to, to sit with her, with her hands clasped together, just like they were in the room with five sides before Psyche was sacrificed. Um, they're together again. The gap is gone. They're, they've been reunited, right? Um, but, um, but there's a gap. Again, the irony, the horrible irony of this chapter is that we come to discover until the final revelation of it at the end of the chapter that although Orowal has crossed the stream, although Orowal has entered the Valley of the Gods, although she and Psyche are joined again, right, and are sitting together again, there's still a gulf wider than the stream than uh, that um, so that that first image of the two of them standing with this with the tempestuous stream running between them hasn't actually changed, right? And this is one of those first glimpses that we get. Oh, Psyche, you say all's well now. Forget that terrible time. Go on quickly and tell me tell me how you were saved. We have so much to talk about and arrange. There's no time. Uh, so Psyche, remember, has just been uh, talking about um, when she woke up and the king was like, uh, you know, lamenting and uh, weeping over her and everything during the ceremony. There's no time, Orwal. There's all the time there is. Don't you want to hear my story? Of course I do. I want to hear every bit when we're safe. And where shall we ever be safe if we're not safe here? This is my home, Maya. And you won't understand the wonder and glory of my adventure unless you listen to the bad part. It wasn't very bad, you know. It's so bad I can hardly bear to listen to it. Two places where we can see the gap here. One, when we're safe, right? Orwell's continued in insistence, like, we must take action. Right? We're not safe. I found you, yes, but that's just the first step. I n and now I have to get you safe. And the strange confidence of Psyche. Where shall we ever be safe if we're not safe here? She says, looking around, where Orwal is seeing a beautiful but desolate mountain valley, exposed mountain valley, right? Psyche's looking around and saying, where should we ever be safe if we're not safe here? And then later, just in a couple sentences later, you won't understand the wonder and glory of my adventure unless you listen to the bad part. Well, okay, maybe there's wonder and glory to come. But she seems to speak as if, as if uh, Orwell should already be 
well aware of the wonder and glory. It's as if she thinks that Orwell should be struck by wonder and glory that needs explaining, right? It becomes clear here for the first time, I think, that the two of them are telling and hearing very different stories. Psyche is sitting in the, you know, on the steps of her palace. She sees around her the very house of the god. And she, therefore, believes that Orwell needs to understand, right? Would want to understand. How did you come here? How did this happen? Where are we? Right? Where are we and how did this become possible? The wonder and the glory of this needs some explanation. And Psyche's giving that explanation. But Orwell sees only them sitting on a, again, desolate but beautiful valley. Um, and can barely bear to hear her story, right? Doesn't see... In other words, the endings of the story are very different, right? Psyche thinks the not only happy but wondrous ending of her story is perfectly clear to be seen, right? Um, and only the beginning and middle need to be explained. Orwell doesn't see any story that has an end, but one that desperately needs it, right? Um, and this leads to a totally different perspective on the bad part of the story. If you know the story has a happy ending, if you know for sure, um, then you have a totally different perspective on it. Um, this is why um, Psyche can say of this part of her story, it wasn't very bad, you know, but not in retrospect, right? Not from where she's sitting, literally. But for Orwell, it's so bad she can hardly bear to listen to it because this is the bad part of what, again, clearly there's been, if not a happy ending, there's been a happy thing, right? Psyche has somehow survived and Orwell does have that, right? Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Dorward, my wife is the same. Um, always reading the end of books first. Um, I can appreciate that perspective. My wife even reads the end of detective stories first um, because she, she loves detective stories and always reads the ending first um, because she finds suspense, the experience of suspense, so stressful that it destroys her pleasure in books. Um, and uh, so she always reads the end first. This has always been true for as long as I've known her. And, um, and again, I can... Um, I can understand that point of view. Um, I <laughs> the experience I can think of that where it makes me most readily relate to that and to what uh, Psyche is describing here is um, to, I often um, I often watch um, watch sports almost always. I very rarely watch sports live. I usually watch recordings after the fact. So the game's over, and usually I try not to. Um, I try not to find out the final score before I watch the game because it's, you know, I, I enjoy the suspense and the drama 
as it's unfolding. Um, but sometimes I do find out the score, but I'll still watch, right? And if you know the final score and you know that the team you're cheering for wins, um, you have a very different experience on the bad parts of the story because um, you know how it's going to turn out. Um, but um, anyway, uh, it's that kind of difference in perspective that Orwal and uh, Psyche seem to have here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. There's there's more to it, of course, than just the happy ending and the and the not knowing, but it's part of it. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Psyche is here describing her experience while she's still chained to the tree. At first I was trying to cheer myself with all that old dream of my golden amber palace on the mountain and the god trying to believe it, but I couldn't believe in it at all. I couldn't understand how I ever had. All that, all my old longings were clean gone. I pressed her hands and said nothing, but inwardly I rejoiced. It might have been good, I don't know, to encourage that fancy the night before the offering, if it supported her. Now I was glad she had got over it. It was a thing I could not like, unnatural and estranging. Perhaps this gladness of mine is one of the things the gods have against me. They never tell. Oh, man. Um, so, you'll remember Orowal's resistance to, even resentment of, Psyche's strong resentment of, actually, um, Psyche's longings. How personally Orwell took that, right? Um, now she is glad that Psyche had got over it. Um, what Psyche is describing is the fact that in the moment, in the moment of her sacrifice, as she's there chained on the mountainside, she tried to cheer herself with her old dreams these visions that seem so real to her. Remember her saying things like, I am going to my lover, right? I'm like, it's, it's happening. It's happening. I'm going to the, to the, you know, to the golden amber palace. Um, but all those things are, are gone. They're no comfort to her when the time comes. This has an effect, which Orowal is not here anticipating, Right. Um, there clearly is or was the opportunity for Psyche to continue in actual delusion, right? To let her longings and her own imagination deceive her into aggressively reinterpreting her environment, right? Into fooling herself that she was actually in a golden amber palace when she was in fact chained to a tree, right? That's the very real prospect that kind of arises here. <clears throat> but Psyche says that failed. Those longings are gone. She couldn't, she couldn't do that. Psyche is left alone without those imaginings, without those longings that were giving her comfort and drawing her to the mountain. Now that she's here on the mountain, she is merely exposed. Her fears, her dreads, um, she is not able to imagine 
that she is in a golden amber palace. And for the moment, Orowal is very pleased with that. It is best that Psyche leave those aside. Um, and um, the... Um, And of course, this is one of the many, many horribly ironic moments, right? Orwell, sitting there with Psyche in this place, thinking, oh, it is good that she lets go of this idea of a golden amber palace. We wouldn't want her living in a mad delusion, right? Yeah, that's totally for the best. Psyche then describes the West Wind showing up and the west wind taking her away not it but him right the god of the west wind whom she sees and her experience of that her description focuses on her self-consciousness on how she feels ashamed of her mortality of how much more alive the gods seem to be she was just comparing it she's like you've seen lepers right um, she's like, think when you've when you've seen a leper and then you see a healthy person, how much more healthy the healthy person looks, right? You kind of take it for granted most of the time, but you know, it, uh, looking at the two of them next to each other makes the healthy person look, you know, twice as healthy and 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 ruddy as as before. And she says, like, seeing the gods next to us is like that, right? And then Orwell, he's like, are you saying he was very bright red, right? She laughed and clapped her hands. Oh, it's no use, she said. I see you've not gotten, I've not given you the idea at all. Never mind. You shall see gods for yourself, Orwell. It must be so. I'll make it so. Somehow. There must be a way. Look, this may help you. When I saw West Wind, I was neither glad nor afraid at first. I felt ashamed. But what of? Psyche, they hadn't stripped you naked or anything. No, no, Maya. Ashamed of looking like a mortal. Ashamed of being a mortal. But how could you help that? Don't you think the things people are most ashamed of are the things they can't help? I thought of my ugliness and said nothing. Um, yes, this passage is the first time the God of the West Wind is mentioned, Mary. Um, he's in the myth. Um, the God of the West Wind takes Psyche to uh, the house of the God uh, of Cupid. That's, it's, it's in the myth. Um, but, um, yeah, oh man, Bricktails, I thought of my ugliness and said nothing, he says, is in my opinion the most painful line in the book. It's up there. There's a bunch of candidates for that. There's so many painful lines. But yes, I thought of my ugliness and said something, and said nothing is a really powerful, really, really powerful line. Um, uh, yes, the things people are most ashamed of are the things they can't help. Um, notice how... Notice the important ground that's been shifted here, right? She says, I was ashamed. And Orwell's response is, how could you help that? Being immortal, right? And notice that the, the implication there is that Orwell is thinking, well, you can only be ashamed of the things you're responsible for, right? If you've done something that is shameful, then yes, you should be ashamed. But why should you be ashamed of anything that isn't your fault, right? It's a, a natural sort of way. It's a, um, if you think about it, I blame the fox here. Um, 
that sounds like the fox talking. The fox's philosophy, I think, um, leads to that kind of thing. Remember, the fox believes that um, the divine nature is good and beautiful, like things, things in their right state are good and clean. Um, and they can, you can make bad choices, right? You can, there is evil in the world. Um, but, um, but the essence of things, like at root, that is not the way that things are, right? And there's a sense that, um, I th where I think Orwell is kind of applying that. Um, she's been taught by the fox that the things to be ashamed of are the things that you do, shameful things that you do. If you do wrong, yes, you should be ashamed of that. That is an evil. And it is an evil that you bring on yourself more even than you bring onto others. Uh, the, again, ask Boethius, the one who does. Um, if uh, you have someone who commits a crime and another person who is the victim of that crime, the person who has had evil done to them is the person who did the crime. The person who uh, had was the victim of the crime has not been morally harmed by that, right? They may have lost some of the goods of fortune or whatever, but that isn't going to harm them. The essence of them, the soul, the psyche of them, right? Um, it's um, it's going to um, it's it's going to harm the one who's made the choice, who's done the thing, right? Um, that's, again, this is the mindset, it seems, that Orwell is coming from. And Psyche just immediately punctures it, right? Um, don't you think the things people are most ashamed of are the things they can't help? Again, this is one of the other places where I think it's not only clear that Orwell is actually ugly. I think it's important that we accept that Orwell is actually ugly, right? The reality of her ugliness strikes her. She is ashamed of her ugliness. It's not her fault that she's ugly. She couldn't help that. She was born that way, right? But has she been ashamed of that her whole life? Yeah. Yeah. Um, she, she has been. She does understand. Uh, so the second attempt of Psyche to make her understand Psyche's own reaction when she is brought to the house of the gods seems to strike home, right? This is a really, really important theme of this entire chapter. What happens when mortals and gods meet? We saw it from the beginning. Bardia is super clear on this, right? Bardia will not cross into the valley and is really, really glad he wasn't invited to do so, right? Um, he understands. Wouldn't have to tell him this twice, right? Orowal doesn't get it. She believes in the gods. But her own relationship with the gods is different. Again, the fox has influenced her in some ways, right? Her own anger against the gods, um, which has already begun, um, has uh, influenced her in this way, right? Um, she doesn't get it. She doesn't see it. Um, Mary asks, is the king ashamed of his behavior? No, but remember, Orwell is ashamed of his behavior, right? The fact that he's not ashamed of his behavior, Mary, is the greatest shame of all, right? Remember how she despises him. 
and almost pities him uh, because of his behavior and the fact that he himself doesn't even see. Um, remember that moment when the fox speaks to him in scorn, says, I had forgotten, for the moment I had forgotten that it is your safety that must be considered above all else, right? And it is the greatest shame in Orwell's mind that the king does not even understand that the fox is mocking him, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Um, but more on this mortality thing. You could see it was a god's house at once. I don't mean a temple where a god is worshipped. A god's house where he lives. Which, remember, Ungit is kind of supposed to live in the house of Ungit. So, anyway. I would not for any wealth have gone into it. But I had to, Orwal. For there came a voice. Sweet, oh, sweeter than any music. Yet my hair rose at it, too. And do you know, Orwal, what it said? It said, enter your house. Yes, it called it my house. Psyche, the bride of the god. I was ashamed again, ashamed of my mortality, and terribly afraid. But it would have been worse shame and worse fear to disobey. I went, cold, small, and shaking, up the steps and through the porch and into the courtyard. There was no one to be seen. But then the voices came, all round me, bidding me welcome. Oh, you know what? I never, I can't believe I never realized this before. I'm sure many of you are thinking of it just now. I went cold, small. There you go, Fanar. I'm just saying exactly what I was referring to. I went cold, small, and shaking up the steps, just like her mom, right? Her mother, the queen, at the beginning, when she arrives, terrified at the house of the king, and then more terrified, stripped naked, cold, small, white, and shivering, shivering with fear and with shame into the king's bed. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. We should definitely be remembering that. Right? On the one hand, that itself was only a dim picture of this. What is happening to Psyche is far... Psyche is crossing a far bigger gulf. A far more, more terrifying gulf than her mother was when she came uh, into the house of the king. Um... But she, but the difference, the difference, remember Orawal thinking how her father, the king, must look to the girl, the girl queen who was showing up, how horrible, how off-putting, right? Um, and instead, we get this, the sweetness the kindness, the generosity, the voices all around her, welcoming her. Enter your house, Psyche, the bride of the god. Um, the difference in the graciousness and the kindness and the generosity with which she is brought in, compared to the king who is thinking only of himself and of his getting an heir, right? Um, the contrast, the similarity and the contrast, so striking, 
so powerful here. Um, I was, she was, she's ashamed of her mortality and terribly afraid, but it would have been worse shame and worse fear to disobey. She has been, she has to make a choice. She has to obey. Psyche chooses to enter into the house. She's not brought. She's not compelled. She steps. I went cold, small, and shaking up the steps. She has to take those steps herself. And she does so despite her shame, despite her fear, in obedience, because she knows that it would have been worse shame and worse fear to disobey. Um, she is painfully aware of the gap between mortal and divine. And yet, when the divine house has entered to her and is calling her in, for her to reject it would be so much more shameful. But more. It's called her house. She is not told to enter into the house of the god. It's clear to her that it is a god's house. But she is told to enter her house. Again, think again of the welcome that's given to the new queen, right? Should it have been that way? Yeah. Even Bata's jibes to Orowal and Redival about the stepmother coming who's going to make things different for them. The way she's going to rule over them and do horrible things to them, whatever she wants, right? Because um, it's going to be her house. When she's the queen, their new stepmother is going to be the, is going to be the queen. She's going to be it's going to be her house now, and they're going to have to answer to her. Remember that uh, that was all there, right? But that wasn't real. That didn't happen. The new queen was never welcomed. It was never made her house. She was never brought into it like this. Um. A brief note about the house of the god. Again, I don't mean a temple where a god is worshipped. And yet, the parallel that this establishes, we should not resist that connection, right? It's a connection which is going to be very much in Orwell's mind. The house of Ungit and the house of the god on the mountain. You could see it was a god's house at once, right? Um... Think of what holiness has meant to Orwell because of the House of Ungit. The darkness, the stench, the blood. Um, and what Psyche is going into, right? Um, the two could not be more different. And yet, they are also, in a sense, the same. They are both holy. They are both the house of the god. And that kind of connection, that tension between those two, two ideas is really, really important uh, in this whole scene that's unfolding. They said, oh, someone was asking about the voices, the spirits. So it, it's not just the god doesn't live here alone. 
right? There are many other divine spirits. The West Wind, right? The God of the West Wind brings her here. And there are other ministering spirits who are here, whom she doesn't see, but whose voices she hear, and whose hands she touches when they bring her things. Um, it's interesting that she says she couldn't see them, the spirits. But when they were carrying cups and bowls to her, she said it didn't look like the cups and bowls were flying on their own. You could tell someone was carrying them, but she couldn't see who, right? Um, they said, refresh yourself, lady, before the bath. After it comes the feast. Oh, Orowal, how can I tell you what it felt like? I knew they were all spirits, and I wanted to fall at their feet, but I daren't. If they made me mistress of that house, mistress I should have to be. Yet all the time I was afraid there might be some bitter mockery in it, and that at any moment terrible laughter might break out and... Ah, I said with a long breath, how well I understood. Oh, but I was wrong, sister. Utterly wrong. That's part of the mortal shame. Oh, man. Um, for me, Bricktails, the line about, um, I thought about my ugliness and said nothing is really painful. This line, how well I understood, is at least as painful. Um, leave out Orwell for a second and focus on what Psyche is saying. Once again, she is describing this continued relationship, just like she was afraid and ashamed to enter into the house of the god, but the goddess said it's her house, and it would be a greater fear and shame not to go, and so she took the steps and crossed the threshold. Here, she's describing how she knows they're all spirits. She wants to fall at the feet of these spirits. These are all divine beings around her, and she knows she is mortal. She's not worthy. She wants to fall at their feet, just like the people of Gloom are falling at hers, her feet, thinking she was a goddess, right? Um, but I daren't. If they made me mistress, mistress I should have to be. Um, if she does revere them, if she does respect them, then she has to believe them. And if they're going to serve her, if they're going to say she is their mistress, to reject that, to refuse that, would be far more disrespectful than anything else she could do. Um, she does confess there is that one limitation, that one doubt Right? The doubt that creeps in, that there might be some bitter mockery in it, that it might all be a joke, because how could it be real? Right? She's trying to describe her own inability to, to, to believe it, right? even though it's happening to her. She's seeing it all around. She's not seeing the spirits themselves. She's seeing the house. She's seeing the feast. She's hearing their voices. She's feeling their hands. And yet, like, okay, so it's not that she doubts that it's real, but Maybe they're just setting her up. Maybe it's a sort of bitter mockery in it. They can't really mean that I'm to be the mistress, that this is my house now. Surely that's too good to be true. And so she admits that, that brief doubt. Then immediately saying, um, I was wrong, utterly wrong. It's part of the mortal shame. 
right? It's part of what it, it's, she has to get over that. She knows she has to get over that. Um, yes. And yes, she does have to agree to serve as mistress, uh, Dorward. You're right. Mutual servitude rather than her ruling over them. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is beautiful in Psyche's nature there. Um, they're going to submit to her, and but there's, you're right, There, there is submission that she has to do. She has to submit to the role that they are giving her, right? And again, it might seem like humility to refuse. No, 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 I'm not going to put myself above the gods. No, I'm not going to enter this house and claim it for my own. I'm too humble for that. But Psyche is aware that that would not be an act of humility, but of pride. To reject what the goddess, what the spirits are saying to her, what the god has, the welcome, to refuse the welcome of the god would not be an act of humility. It would be an act of pride. It would, in fact, be saying, I, I reject I refuse. Um, and yes, so the result... Um, yeah, fear too. I agree. Fear as well. Um, I'm just saying, again, it would seem humble. Um, but it would not, in fact, be an act of humility. Um, and that's why... That's what she's perceiving here. If they made me mistress, mistress I should have to be. Again, that that's the irony of her situation. Um, I am unworthy to rule over these people. I, they are above me. I must, I should submit to them. And what they want me to submit to is ruling over them. <laughs> right? Um, and that's the, the ironic situation that she finds herself caught in here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but now, Orowal's interruption. There is one part of this story that Orowal latches onto, that Orowal resonates with powerfully. Ah, said I with a long breath, how well I understood. The idea of bitter mockery, that at any moment terrible laughter might break out, and you discover that this blessing that seemed to happen has all been a joke. A horrible joke at your expense. It's all been worse than a tease. Right? Um, that is... Um, that is... She understands that. That's why she wouldn't let her heart dance on the mountaintop. That's why she was resistant even to Psyche's welcome. Right? Uh, to Psyche's reassurance. Um... That seems to be, in some ways, what she's looking back on her whole life with Psyche, right? She's... Psyche's sacrifice is the bitter mockery. She was given Psyche, this beautiful girl, to be as her own daughter. And she was permitted to go on in happiness and joy for years, only to have it snatched away from her. At that moment, terrible laughter broke out. And now, she's been reunited with Psyche. And she is ready at any moment for the terrible laughter to break out again. Right? Orowal gets this. She gets this. 
um, this is the mindset of Orwell from the start. Um, then Psyche refers to the god, refers to he. He, the bridegroom, the god himself. Don't look at me like that, sister. I'm your own true Psyche still. Nothing will change that. See what happened there? Right? See how Psyche interpreted... So there's a look that Orwell gives her when she refers to him. Then he came. Right? Um, Psyche is married now. Psyche is no longer a virgin. And that's what she's referring to. I'm your own true Psyche still. I haven't changed. Don't look at me like that. Don't look at me like I'm a different person. Like I have changed. Because I'm now a wife. Because I am no longer a virgin. Um, I'm your own true Psyche still. Nothing will change that. And there are a couple different elements of this. One is like don't think I have been um, altered by becoming a wife, by no longer being a virgin. Um, and yes, I am now married. Like, yes, I've consummated my marriage with the God himself. But I'm still your own true psyche. Nothing will change that. I, I, I love you the same, though I am now also married to that. I think true means... Um, uh, means, yeah, faithful. I'm your own true psyche still. I still love you truly. I, my love for you has not changed or altered, right? I am, um, I am true to you, to our love, to our relationship. That hasn't changed and won't change. Nothing will change that. Um, but I think that she's misinterpreting, to some extent, Orowal's look. Psyche, said I, leaping up, I can't bear this any longer. You have told me so many wonders. If this is all true, I've been wrong all my life. Everything has to be begun over again. Psyche, is it true? You're not playing a game with me? Show me. Show me your palace. Here is Orwell on the brink. Here is Orwell literally standing on the threshold of the house of the god. Literally and figuratively. In this moment of Orwell, of uh, Psyche, both talking about her marriage to the god and Psyche pledging that she, nothing will change the fact that she remains Orwell's own true Psyche. For this moment, Orwell is almost ready to believe. You have told me so many wonders. If all, if this is all true, she's not believing, but she's open to it. If this is all true, I've been wrong all my life. Everything has to be begun over again. Remember, the thing that needs to be begun over again, I think, more than anything else, is that conviction that she was resonating with just in that previous slide. That fear of bitter mockery that unwillingness to accept even good things at the hands of the gods for fear that terrible laughter might break out any moment, 
and you find that the joke was on you, if what Psyche is saying is true, then Orwell's been wrong about that. Then it hasn't been bitter mockery. Then it would be okay to let her heart dance, in fact. Everything has to be begun over again. Show me. Show me. Of course I will, she said, rising. Let us go in, and don't be afraid, whatever you see or hear. Let us go in. Is it far? said I. She gave me a quick, astonished look. Far to where? she said. To the palace, to this god's house. You have seen a lost child in a crowd run up to a woman whom it takes for its mother, and how the woman turns round and shows the face of a stranger, and then the look in the child's eyes, silent a moment before it begins to cry. Psyche's face was like that, checked, blank, happiest assurance suddenly dashed all to pieces. Horrible, she said, beginning to tremble. What do you mean? I too became frightened, though I had yet no notion, I, but I had yet no notion of the truth. Mean, said I, where is the palace? How far have we to go to reach it? She gave one loud cry. Then, with white face, staring hard into my eyes, she said, But this is it, Orwell. It's here. You are standing on the stairs of the great gate. Oh, Count Elros, that is marvelous. Yes, pointing out that Psyche, or Orwell does not call it Psyche's house. Calls it um, this god's house. That's interesting. Yes, that's a very good point. Oh, man, this, at the end of this chapter, is so crushing. So crushing. Um, Lewis will admit this. We'll talk about this later on in the afterward thing. Um, this is the great genius of Lewis as a myth maker in this story. This is the element that he adds. Um, he has deliberately tweaked the traditional myth in one way. This is it. The idea that Orwell cannot see the house of the god um, is unique to C.S. Lewis's version of this myth. And it is the element that makes this whole story incredible. One of the elements, anyway. Um, and yes, Sphinx, oh man, that extended simile, right? Um, oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Um, you have seen a lost child in a crowd run up to a woman whom it takes for its mother, and how the woman turns round and shows the face of a stranger, and then the look in the child's eyes, silent a moment before it begins to cry. Psyche's face was like that, checked, blank, happiest assurance suddenly dashed all to pieces. This is... um really a very Homeric epic simile. Um, the structure of this is just how Homer does it. Um, which, of course, is very fun in the context here. 
Um, but of course, think of the aptness of it. Not only is this something that um, I bet most of us have had this experience. I have a very strong memory of my childhood. How old was I? Seven. I think I was seven when this happened. Um, exactly this. Um, losing sight of my mom and running up to a woman who was wearing exactly the same color shirt, right? But I didn't even look, like, closely enough because I was scared, right? And, um, uh, and I, and I, I, I ran up and, like, threw my arms around her waist, right? Um, and to the surprise of the strange woman, right? Um, and that feeling, like, looking up, and the, the way in which, like, the whole world tilts sideways, right? In that moment when you think you were safe, right? You think you have, like, you know, I remember that sensation. Not the sen not even just the sensation of looking up into the face of this woman, but the sensation of hugging her, right? Um, you know, like the, 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 the fear has gone, right? The, um, the doubt has passed, and then the horror, right? The the exponential deepening of it, right, in that moment. Oh my goodness. Um uh oh my goodness. I uh, and so the comparison is of course perfectly apt between Psyche and Orwal. Right? Psyche's face is like the child. because she's realizing that she's looking into the face of a stranger. Psyche now sees the gulf between her and Orwal. She sees it and fully understands it. More than Orwal does, right? Um, happiest assurance suddenly dashed all to pieces. Notice how at the end she's with a white face staring hard into my eyes, right? Um, yeah. Um, oof. Man, it's just so powerful. Um, this perception of the gulf. And remember, this was just at the moment when Orowal was ready to go. Where is the palace? How far have we to go to reach it? She is, to some extent and on some level, ready to believe. Right? Um... And now we are coming to that part of my history on which my charge against the gods chiefly rests. And therefore, I must try at any cost to write what is wholly true. Yet it is hard to know perfectly what I was thinking while those huge, silent moments went past. By remembering it too often, I have blurred the memory itself. I suppose my first thought must have been, she's mad. Anyway, my whole heart leaped to shut the door against something monstrously amiss, not to be endured, and to keep it shut. Perhaps I was fighting not to be mad myself. 
This is the part of her history on which her charge against the gods chiefly rests. We thought it might have been, you know, the fact that Psyche was taken and made a human sacrifice to the gods. Turns out that's not the problem, right? That is not the reason that Orowal hates the gods. Um, this is the moment. This is the beginning of her part, the part of her history against, uh, uh, on which her charge is based. Um, not to be mad myself as in deranged, as in insane, Sarah. Definitely. Um, notice what door is she wanting to shut? My whole heart leaped to shut the door against something monstrously amiss. She doesn't want... There is no good way out of this situation for Orwell. One of two things must be true. Either, well, three things, right? Either Psyche is insane. She thinks we're standing in the middle of a palace when we're standing in a desolate valley. Uh, in an empty valley. Let me not use the word desolate because it's rich and lively and beautiful, but it's empty in Orwell's vision, right? Um, either Psyche has gone mad or the other alternative, which is worse, right? There's Psyche has gone mad. There's the third option on the far end of the spectrum. Orwell herself has gone mad. Right. Um, maybe she's maybe this whole thing, maybe this entire encounter with Psyche is an insane. You know, it's just part of her own insanity. Right. But worse still, in a sense, is the thing in the middle. Right. The other option that Psyche is not mad. And that the palace is there and Orwell can't see it. That there is, that she is in fact surrounded by the gods and the house of the gods, even if she can't see it with her mortal sight. And the idea of that, that I think is what is for her not to be endured. Remember, she had just opened the door to belief in what Psyche had said. Belief that Psyche had been taken into the house of the god, that she was served by the ministering spirits of the gods, that she was made the mistress of the God's house. She was just ready to, she was opening the door to that. And what she finds now is that she has to push that door shut because something is monstrously amiss. And it might be her. Not insanity. Perhaps I was fighting not to be mad myself. Maybe. But that doesn't seem to be what she's really fearing. What she's fearing is that it's true. But what I said when I got my breath, and I know my voice came out in a whisper, was simply, we must go away at once. This is a terrible place. Notice, that's not 
a con the confident assertion of somebody who knows that psyche is insane right this is a terrible place is an admission that something is here there is something happening here but she can't see it and she doesn't know it and we have to run away Remember Psyche describing her own reaction when she, a mortal, came into the presence of the gods. Orwal is struggling with that too. But it's hitting her very differently. And remember there were things that Psyche couldn't see also. She couldn't see the spirits. She just heard voices and saw things floating around. Right. Um, Orwal can't see them. Can't see the things. Right. Um, but again, she is not, she is not confident that Psyche is insane and that the things that Psyche is saying that she sees and that she has done are impossible. Was I believing in her invisible palace? A Greek will laugh at the thought. But it's different in Gloam. The gods are too close. There, the gods are too close to us. Up in the mountain, in the very heart of the mountain, where Bardia had been afraid and even the priests don't go, anything was possible. No door could be kept shut. Yes, that was it. Not plain belief, but infinite misgiving. The whole world, psyche with it, slipping out of my hands. Notice who's the child looking up and finding that she's embracing someone who's not her mother now, right? Now Psyche. No, sorry, now Orwell is in that position as she sees the whole world slipping out of her hands. It's different in Gloam. She can't just have the Greek confidence that the fox might have had in this situation. She can't just disregard She's never been able to do that. She's never been able to just wholly adopt the fox's philosophy and ignore Ungit, right? Um, anything was possible up in the mountain. No door could be kept shut. The gods are too close. Oh man, Maureen, there is so much going on here. It's just amazing. Um, and yes, Sarah, you are absolutely right that there is also the stealing Psyche away from me thread of Orwell's grief. It's clear. Remember when Psyche in their previous discussion before her sacrifice was saying that like, yeah, she's going to die, but she was anyway. Like anything that she did, being married off, right? Losing your maidenhead, becoming a mother. These are all kinds of deaths, right? Um, their relationship is going to change. Orwell was going to lose her one way or the other sooner or later. I'm not sure it's not best this way, Psyche says. Right. And remember, the fox says a similar kind of thing. He's not sure it's not best this way. Um, so, yeah, so we get... We already got, um, in that sense, Sarah, right? Um, Orwell's dread like of losing Psyche, just in that in that way or psyche being taken away from her and the idea of her being married off to somebody and taken away that would have been almost equally horrible to Orwell, right and so you're absolutely right that we um um you're right that that is an element that underlies this entire thing right you've got the two things 
I was going to say at war, but they're not at war with each other. You've got the two things happening in Orwell's mind at the same time. Um, this baseline sense of, I have lost Psyche. She's gone off and gotten married. And that's going to come up again and again throughout this chapter, right? I have lost her. She's not my Psyche anymore. And we saw how she was dreading that all the way, well before the sacrifice, right? And then you have the mortal and divine thing. The reaction of the mortal in the presence of divine that Psyche was talking about throughout the previous chapter, right? Both of those things are completely at play in Orwell's mind, right? And influencing her in, um, uh, in, in these different ways. Oh man, Sphinx, I agree. Not plain belief, but infinite misgiving is a tremendous distinction, isn't it? Oh man. She doesn't believe. No door could be kept shut. Yes, that was it. Not plain belief, but infinite misgiving. It isn't that she believes, and certainly not that she trusts the gods of Gloam, but she can't keep the door shut. There's a kind of... The fox's belief is safe. Right? Reminds me of that scene in the beginning of uh, The Neverending Story, right? About books that are safe. Um, uh, the fox's belief is safe, right? Um, if you believe like the fox, the, then you believe that the gods can't, the gods are never going to jump out at you, right? They're never going to do anything to you, they're never going to get up in your business. The divine nature that the fox believes in is safe. Um, it's clear. It makes sense. Um, but the gods of Gloam do stuff. They demand things like sacrifice. And she can't, no door can be kept shut. She doesn't believe, but she has infinite misgiving. You can't rest for, uh, for, you can't be confident, right? Um, you can't ever let your guard down. Yes, and Gary, you're absolutely right. The um, the irony, no door could be kept shut when she is at the door of the house, right? She is trying to slam the door while she is not wanting, not believing that she is entering the palace. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I forget, um, who is it? Jackie, somebody was talking about the, um, something monstrously amiss, right? Those two phrases. She, she wants to shut the door against something monstrously amiss. The thing that's amiss is that divine world entering into the human world, that encounter between the mortal and the divine, right? Mortal things in the presence of the divine, the divine entering into and interfering with the, with the mortal world, right? Getting in our business, getting into our world, doing things to us and the people that we love. It's monstrously amiss, right? It's such a wonderful phrase. And both of those phrases, something monstrously amiss and infinite misgiving. Oh, man. Um, yes, Eric, you're right. Um, seeing both Orwell's moment of realization of the possibilities and her desperation to avoid self-scrutiny, right? Um, 
the whole world's psyche with it slipping out of my hands. Whatever I meant, that is whatever I meant by we must go away at once, this is a terrible place. She misunderstood me horribly. So, she said, you do see it after all. See what? I asked. A fool's question. I knew what. It's fair, I think, to ask the question here. I, I, I'm not sure Psyche's wrong. Psyche, Psyche can see what's happening in Orwell's heart here, to some extent, I think. You do see it after all. No, she doesn't see it. She won't see it, right? What she's describing, though, in that paragraph, what she has infinite misgiving about is the fact that it might be there to be seen. But she was already leaping to, to close the door, and here she is trying to close her eyes to this thing that she is afraid she might see, right? Um, she knows that she's asking a fool's question. She knows that it's pointless to try to play dumb, right? A little bit later. Presently, her throat moved as if she were swallowing something. Oh, the beauty of her throat. We get many of these references throughout, right? Moments when Orwell is just touched and ex can't help but exclaim about Psyche's beauty. Oh, the beauty of her throat. She pressed down a great storm of passion, and her mood changed. It was now sober, sadness, mixed with pity. She struck her breast with her clenched fist as mourners do. So this is right after Psyche has a moment where she's like, what do you mean you can't see it? Touch it. Beat your head against it, right? And then she has this change. Aye, aye, she mourned. So this is what he meant. You can't see it. You can't feel it. For you, it is not there at all. Oh, Maya, I am very sorry. I came almost to a full belief. She was shaking and stirring me a dozen different ways, but I had not shaken her at all. She was certain of her palace, as of the plainest thing, as certain as the priest had been of Ungit when my father's dagger was between his ribs. I was as weak beside her as the fox beside the priest. This valley was indeed a dreadful place, full of the divine, sacred, no place for mortals. There might be a hundred things in it I could not see infinite misgiving. Right? Her misgiving is almost confirmed. And what confirms it is Psyche's own confidence, her own belief that she is speaking throughout about something she can plainly see. She is as certain of her palace as of the plainest thing. And she no longer is treating Orwal as if Orwal is being stubborn or crazy. For you it is not there at all. I am very sorry. Notice also what she's given, what Psyche has given Orwal here. A way to understand. A way to explain. Remember the options, right? Either Psyche is mad, Orwal herself is mad, or there's something there that she can't see. But but wait, why? Why would she not be able to see it? 
She wouldn't be able to see it if it was a divine thing and the god did not allow her to see it. She would not be able to see it if the god chose not to reveal it to her. That's in his power to do. And she, Orowal, seems to understand that. Right? And that's what Psyche points to. This is what he meant. For you it is not there at all. I am very sorry. As Psyche realizes what's happening. Right? And yes, Abelard, worst of all, right? That would explain it. That makes that horrible, terrifying, you know, possibility plausible, right? That tracks. That makes sense. It is very possible that the divine could deny the sight of this to her. Was not Bardia denied even entry into this valley? That's normal. That makes sense. <clears throat> this valley was indeed a dreadful place, full of the divine, sacred, no place for mortals. She feels it. She's come almost to a full belief. Can a Greek understand the horror of that thought? Man, uh, this paragraph. This book, holy cow. Can a Greek understand the horror of that thought? Years after, I dreamed, again and again, that I was in some well-known place, most often the pillar room, and everything I saw was different from what I touched. I would lay my hand on the table and feel warm hair instead of smooth wood, and the corner of the table would shoot out a hot, wet tongue and lick me. And I knew, by the mere taste of them, that all those dreams came from that moment when I believed I was looking at Psyche's palace and did not see it. For the horror was the same, a sickening discord, a rasping together of two worlds like the two bits of a broken bone. But in the reality, not in the dreams, with the horror came the inconsolable grief. For the world had broken in pieces, and Psyche and I were not in the same peace. Seas, mountains, madness, death itself could not have removed her from me to such a hopeless distance as this. Gods, and again gods, always gods, they had stolen her. They would leave us nothing. A thought pierced up through the crust of my mind like a crocus coming up in the early year. Was she not worthy of the gods? Ought they not to have her? But instantly, great, choking, blinding waves of sorrow swept it away, and, oh, I cried, it's not right, it's not right, oh, Psyche, come back, where are you? Come back, come back. Oh, man. The disjunction. First, the first paragraph here. Her dreams that... The reality behind what she sees in the world is different from what it seems. Um, this sickening discord, the horror that she feels. Remember, her perception of the presence of the divine was one of infinite misgiving. She, for her, the idea that the world that she's always seen and known is not the whole world, that there is, in fact, 
another world beyond it, the world of the gods. And that that can be crossed, that the gods can come in, that we can be brought into there, throws everything into doubt. Um, the world has broken in pieces. She now perceives the divine world and the human world. And remember the door she was trying to slam shut. The door that she was tempted to go through is the door in between the two. And for the rest of her life, she will be haunted by dreams which have their root in this. That there is something. And notice the thing that she describes. She thinks she's touching a wooden table and instead it's something alive. Something with warm hair that has a tongue that licks her, that acts on its own. That she can't trust. The world isn't safe anymore. It's not inert. It's alive. And it might do something to you. Even something silly. Like licking her hand. Right? But the horror of it. That you can't trust your eyes. You can't trust the world. Um, oh my goodness, Alyssa, you are so right. Gods, and again, gods. Um, always gods sounds exactly like the king saying, girls, girls, always girls. I don't know what to do with that connection, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, I guess the one thing I'd do with it, Alyssa, is that what led the king to that rage to rail against girls, right? Um, the birth of Psyche, the birth of the girl who's been made the wife of the god, the girl who has crossed this frontier, right? Um, the king certainly is um, not appreciating the gift of the gods, right? He has been given a gift. He has been given Istra, Psyche, um, and rails against it. A rejection of fate, Carrie? Yeah, yeah. And certainly a strong link between the king and Orwell again. A couple of you have mentioned this already, especially in chapter 11, um, that... Uh, that line, that thing that Psyche said um, about how much Orwell looks like her father sometimes looms repeatedly behind this chapter. Yes, yes. Um, the one perception... That is the perception that there is this other world. The perception of the reality. Because remember, the infinite misgiving has been almost confirmed. She has almost come to full belief. From misgiving into actual belief. Right? She is... She knows that in this place, she is actually encountering the divine. And that which has these echoes 
throughout her nightmares for the rest of her life. Um, uh, is it leads to two thoughts, right? Well, three. First, the realization of her distance from Psyche. She was standing on the threshold with Psyche on the other side of the threshold, reaching out her hand to bring her across, right? They were almost going to be together on Psyche's side, just as Psyche guided her across the stream. Um, but in this moment, she sees and feels powerfully that the world had broken in pieces and Psyche and I were not in the same peace. Seas, mountains, madness, death itself could not have removed her from me to such a hopeless distance as this. The sense of loss that she has lost Psyche, that the gods have stolen her. To some extent, those two things are like synonymous, right? Psyche has crossed the boundary and has been brought to live in the house of the god, has been welcomed and brought in by the god, and the house has been made her own, and the gods have stolen her away from the mortal world. Both true. Both true. Um, it depends where you're standing, right? And notice the choice that she has about how, these are the second and third thoughts, right? The choice that she has about how to understand that. The one way, the thought that pierces up through the crust of her mind like a crocus coming up in the early year. Oh, man. C.S. Lewis's similes in this book. Holy cow! Was she not worthy of the gods? Ought they not to have her? What she thinks of there is of Psyche, thinking only of Psyche. Is this not what's best for her? Is there anything that Orwal and the rest of the world could offer Psyche that's better than what she has? If she's thinking, in fact, of Psyche and Psyche's best interests and Psyche's benefits, what more could she possibly hope to give her than what she has received? Right. Um, but instantly, great choking, blinding waves of sorrow swept it away. The sorrow which is focused on herself. When she turns her eyes away from Psyche in bliss, Psyche, the glorious mistress of the house of the god, and turns her eyes instead towards herself, separated by an infinite distance, back in the darkened mortal world, permanently losing Psyche. And she can't bear it. It's not right. It's not right. Where are you? Come back. Come back. Um... And yes, I saw the comments you guys were making, and I totally agree that um, we're not told whether the king is 
ugly, physically ugly. Um, in part because he's a dude. Nobody cares if guys, if like men are ugly. That's pretty clear, right? The beauty of women matters in this society. Um, uh, I mean, I think young Terran the guard, whom Redival smooches, is kind of hot. Um, but um, but it doesn't really matter, right? And yet, um, yeah, power is what's important for men. But nevertheless, you're absolutely right that the ugliness of the king is on the inside, right? And the ugliness of the king, his temper, his um, his demeanor, his attitude, his treatment of other people, the king establishes a sort of a standard for interpersonal ugliness, right? For what um, cruel cruelty and disregard for others looks like. There's a deep ugliness to that, right? Even the fox, who does not regard or care the least bit about Orwell's physical ugliness, is very affected by the king's moral ugliness, right? Um, Orwell looking like her father, that's true in more than one sense, right? And Orwell being ugly, she is physically ugly, and um, she can't help that, right? Um but um, she can't help that. But the um, her she has she does have some of the king's moral ugliness as well. Um, yeah, yeah, Jocelyn. The questions you're asking are very true to what Orwell is experiencing right now. Right. The cruelty is the God allowing Orwell to come and have the truth of the loss in her face and the loss in psyches as well. The God presumably knows the grief for them both, could have chosen to say no, not let Orwell enter, but instead allowed the pain, caused the pain, desired the pain. Yeah, sure sounds like that, doesn't it? That's very much Orwell's experience. And again, exactly such questions, exactly such reactions are not only ones that Lewis permits in how he tells this story, but invites. Um, he does not turn away from that. He does not turn away from that. Um, who are you talking of? And he, she refers to the God again. I asked, but I meant, why do you talk of him to me? What have I to do with him? Here now, now that she has turned her eyes to herself and her own sorrow, that competition, right? Um, I have lost you because you have gone to him instead, is coming more and more to the fore. But Maya, she said, I've told you all my story. My God, of course, my lover, my husband, the master of my house. Oh, I can't bear it, said I, leaping up. Those last words of hers, spoken softly and with trembling, set me on fire. I could feel my rage coming back. Then, like a great light, a hope of deliverance, it came to me. I asked myself why I'd forgotten, and how long I'd forgotten that first notion of her being mad. Madness, of course. The whole thing must be madness. I had been nearly as mad as she to think otherwise. At the very name madness, the air of that valley seemed more breathable seemed emptied a little of its holiness and horror. 
we have had horror combined with holiness before in Orwell's experience. Experience of Ungit and the house of Ungit, right? The horror of darkness and stench and fear and dread and ickiness of that, of the, the, you know, from the ickiness of old blood to the ickiness of nasty, stale, sticky smells to the ickiness of uh, faceless temple prostitutes, right? Um, all of the horror of that is what she has associated with holiness from the start, right? She still associates holy horror and holiness, though now in a totally different context. There's none of those things here, right? Um, and yet... Um, So, uh, okay. Oh, I see people asking questions. Hang on, hang on, Mary. Um, we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, Mary, you were saying he warns her, but he lets her reveal herself to Orwell, where it seems like Orwell would have been happier never knowing the truth. Yes, but don't forget. Orwell's choice is real. Remember, there have been a couple times when she could have gone through the door. What would have happened? We don't know. Psyche thinks she knows. Psyche believes that if Orwell stays, if Orwell were to believe, to believe in her, to believe in Psyche, that she, Psyche, would be able to... Um, that she, Orwell, would be able to see in time, that she would be given sight of it, right? Um, she does not, Psyche does not believe that Orwell will be forever kept out here. And indeed, we have seen Orwell on the very edge of belief many times. But Orwell has to choose, to one extent, in one sense, what the god of the mountain has done is give Orwell the choice. Um, but boy, does it look cruel to her, right? Um, and yes, Leaf of Starlight says, the god's motivation and character at this point are quite a mystery to me. Need more information to determine if a negative force, 100%, absolutely, they're supposed to be. Rem in keeping them a mystery, we are left in the place of Orwell, that place of infinite misgiving. What is this God up to? What does he mean? What does he want? What does he intend? Remember how readily Orwell relates to that fear of bitter mockery. Right? That it's going to turn out all to be a bitter mockery. She now believes that it's like Orwell is now hearing the terrible laughter breaking out that she dreaded. This has all been a joke. She seizes in consolation on... Um, yeah, so hang on a second. I would urge... The, I, it's understandable, almost inevitable for you guys to be asking the questions that you're asking about what's really going on with the God. 
but stop for a moment. We don't know. We don't know. Focus instead on Orwell and on Psyche and on where they are and what they are perceiving. That's what the story is giving us, right? We may want to know this story from the God of the Mountain's perspective, but we're not going to get it, right? Um, and we're going to miss what we are getting if we don't go along with this. You see what I mean? Um, uh, it is a mystery. We don't know. Um, and certainly if Orwell is any guide, we have no reason to assume that we can trust. Notice in this, we as readers are brought to the same kind of place that Orwell is, right? Orwell has reason to believe Psyche. It's not that she has no evidence on Psyche's side. She knows Psyche. Um, just exactly what Curious Chance was just saying, exactly. Um, the West Wind is a separate god. It's the god of the mountain. The, West, the god of the West Wind seems to serve the god of the mountain. Um, the first of many gods that she meets, Psyche meets, who serve the god of the mountain. The fact, Mary, that the god of the mountain is not named makes it even more mysterious, doesn't it? Um, she's been living in what I've been calling that middle place, right? Psyche's madness on the one side, her own madness on the other side, that horrible, uncertain, dreadful middle place that she's been in. Um, she's crawling out of that now. She's slammed the door closed. Madness. Oh, yeah. She must be crazy. That must be it. Have done with it, Psyche, I said sharply. Where is this god? Where the palace is? Nowhere. In your fancy. Where is he? Show him to me. What is he like? She looked a little aside and spoke, lower than ever, but very clear, and as if all that had yet passed between us were of no account beside the gravity of what she was now saying. Oh, Orawal, she said, not even I have seen him yet. He comes to me only in the holy darkness. He says I mustn't, not yet, see his face or know his name. I'm forbidden to bring any light into his, our, chamber. Then she looked up, and as our eyes met for a moment, I saw in hers unspeakable joy. There's no such thing, I said, loud and stern. Never say these things again. Get up. It's time. Yes, here's the holy darkness again, but how transformed. There is holiness in darkness. Holy places are dark places. Maybe not in the ways and for the reasons that Orwell has thought and suspected through her experience with the House of Ungit, right? He says I mustn't, not yet, see his face or know his name. She, Psyche, had a sense that it was inappropriate for her in her mortal body to be brought into the presence of the god. She was ashamed of it, right? I think she's not wrong. There's a progression to these things. Psyche could see the house, but she could only see the house. She couldn't even see the spirits, and she's not permitted to see the god. And here, I think back to the parallel we were making when we were talking about her being bright-face before. The parallel we're making to Moses on top of Mount Sinai, who is shown 
a portion of the glory of God and whose face shines and reflects back the glory of God such that he has to wear a veil because his face is shining so brightly afterwards, right? Um, If you are shown the full glory of God, a mortal exposed to the full glory of God will be destroyed. The Jews knew this. The Greeks knew this. They have, Anchises knew this in that mythic story, in that poem that the fox was reciting, right? This is known. And the God in the holy darkness suggests this in mercy. I mustn't not yet see his face or know his name. The holy dark the darkness is holy because the God is in it. And the darkness is necessary because she is still mortal. She is the mortal being joined with the God. They have been married, but she's not fully ready yet. The fullness of his name and his face can't be revealed to her. She's forbidden to bring any light into his chamber, which she corrects, our chamber. It is her chamber. It's her bedroom, too. But she can't bring any light into it. Um, there are still limits. Um, and the questions you guys were just asking about the God that I was saying we shouldn't, we can't answer. That's one of the cores of this entire myth that we don't know and can't know. It is a mystery in multiple senses of that word. On the one hand, she has been joined to the God. They have been married. They have had sex there in her, you know, she has made the bride of the God there in that chamber. And yet, she is still mortal, and he is still divine. And she is not yet ready. What will that look like? What will it be like when she is ready to see his face? The God doesn't have a face yet either. Someday, she might be able to see his face. But not yet. Her reaction to this is unspeakable joy. She knows, she feels, she is speaking here of the holiest, most sacred thing that she, you know, thing that she isn't, her direct, her direct encounter with the God. And, um... But Orwal looks on these things very differently. From her perspective, her horror, which has fueled her skepticism, which is in turn amplified by her jealousy, by her sense of rivalry with the god, this god who has come in and taken Psyche away from her, right? 
she will look at this. She looks at this here very differently, right? Remember, as we've said many times before, this book is full of facts, which can easily be read in multiple different ways. From the laying on of hands of the sick people, right? Through to the, the forbidding, right? The taboo that she's not allowed to see his face. Um, yes, Mary, you're right. She is being very vulnerable here. Psyche is. And then she gets slapped down. The savagery of Orwell's response is very noticeable here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now that Orwell has closed the door, right? Um, all right, one more slide. We're over time, but I want to finish with this. Psyche's going to confront her with some facts. If it's all my fancy, how do you think I have lived these many days? Do I look as if I'd fed on berries and slept under the sky? Are my arms wasted or my cheeks fallen in? I would, I believe, have lied to her myself and said they were, but it was impossible. From the top of her head to her naked feet, she was bathed in life and beauty and well-being. It was as if they flowed over her or from her. It was no wonder Bardia had worshipped her as a goddess. The very rags served only to show more of her beauty. All the honey sweetness, all the rose red and the ivory, the warm, breathing perfection of her. She seemed, but that's impossible, I thought, taller than before. And as my, and, and as my lie died unspoken, she looked at me with something like mockery in her face. Her mocking looks had always been some of her loveliness. You see? She said, it's all true. And that, no, listen, Maya, that's why all will come right. We'll make, he will make you able to see. And then, I don't want it, I cried, putting my face close to hers, threatening her almost, till she drew back before my fierceness. I don't want it. I hate it. Hate it, hate it, hate it. Do you understand? Oh, man. Um... several important things to emphasize as we close here today. First, the objective reality of Psyche and not just of her loveliness. Remember, people have been mistaking Istra for a goddess for a long time, right? That's how things started back in Cologne. Um, but um, Orwell had never had that problem. I mean, she'd always loved uh, Psyche and was always totally enamored of her beauty. Remember her going on and on and on about her beauty and, um, and the way that it transformed and made everything else beautiful, right? Um, and remember this fox saying that she was like one of the gods. She was like, she was like the perfection of nature, right? Um, 
But now Orwell herself cannot help but say no wonder Bardia had worshipped her as a, guardian, as a goddess. Even that sense, she seems taller than before. She's grown stronger, for sure. I believe that what, um, what this points to, Psyche is actually changing, physically changing. This, I think, remember, following up on the god saying, not yet, not yet see my face or know my name. Psyche is changing. She's still mortal, but I think she is. She's been welcomed into the house of the gods. She is being made into a goddess, for real. She is being transformed. There will come a point when Psyche has been transformed to the point where she will be able to see the face of the god and to know his name. She is undergoing a real transformation. And Orwell sees it. Orwell can tell. And it is the piece of objective truth that would almost drive her back to that middle ground. And Psyche sees that. It's all true. And that's why all will come right. He will make you able to see in other words, see, Orowal also has to be transformed. She can't see. She's further down than Psyche, right? In the transformation. Psyche's closer. Psyche could see the house. She couldn't see the spirits. She's not allowed to see her husband. But she can see the house and the food and the bath. And Orowal can't see that, right? but he can make her able to in time. A transformation is possible for Orwell. All she has to do is step across the threshold, is step through that door that she herself saw opening, but which she has pushed closed. And that's what we see here at the end. I don't want it. As many of you have just been pointing out um, as many of you have been pointing out she chooses this is her choice I don't want it she refuses to go through the door she hates it it isn't that she can't it's that she won't Oh, curious chance. Her mocking looks had always been some of her loveliness. It is loveliest. It is a strange sentiment. But remember, we got a glimpse of this before. Um, when she imitated the fox, when she was talking to Orwell, remember that? She does her like imitation of the fox, and she imitates him really, really well. And um, there's the comparison. Bata is always imitating, m mocking, mockingly imitating people. And she does it very badly, and she does it spitefully. She's trying to belittle them, right? Um, and she... Um, uh, but when Psyche does it, Psyche doesn't do it in mockery. She does it in love. She, um, um, Her mocking looks, right? She, she teases. She jokes. And we've seen her be playful with Maya, 
right with Orwal. Um, her mocking looks had always been some of her loveliest, right? When Psyche teases her, when Psyche makes fun of her, solemn Orwal, right? Um, just as when she was imitating the fox, she was doing so lovingly, teasingly, right? Um, and yet, so that's always been part of her, part of her beauty, part of her loveliness, um, part of her lovingness, even. And yet, curious chance, the horrible echo, remember, of that fear that Orwell understands only too well, that this glimpse of the divine that's being given is only just going to be a mockery and it's going to be taken away, right? And the bitter laughter will break out. Um, the terrible laughter. Um, yeah, it's a memory of that, right? Um, she knows and trusts Psyche's mockery, right? Psyche's teasing, Psyche's joking. Will she trust what might seem like the mockery of the gods? Not so much. Um... Okay. Um, we're almost there. Let's see. I started tonight with an insane number of slides. How far did I get? Oh, 18. Look at that. Okay, 17. One was the title. We did 17 slides tonight, which is pretty darn good. I still have more that I wanted to do. But anyway, that's all right. Um, we'll finish those up next time. So next time, go ahead and read through chapter 14. Um my plan for next time is to finish up 11. We're almost there. Finish up chapter 11 and then look at chapters 12 and 13. In chapters 12 and 13, um, we're going to get, we're going to start trying to interpret what's going on. How is Orwell going to respond to this? How is she going to interpret it? And what is she going to do? Uh, chapters 12 and 13 are her getting input that help her to try to interpret things. Uh, chapter 14 is going to be her final processing of that and her decision about what to do. Um, we may or may not get all the way, get into chapter 14 next time, but read it just in case. Um, we may go more quickly through chapters 12 and 13 than I think. Probably not, but we might. In any case, definitely 12 and 13 are what I plan on talking about next time. And then we'll get into chapter 14 and the truly staggering chapter 15. Um, so, um, Okay. Anyway, that's what and I know many of you have read on ahead. It's hard to stop and it's okay. I'm just telling you what we're going to be covering. So, all right. Thanks everybody. Um, this is, um, this is a, an amazing book to discuss. Um, and I appreciate your doing it with me. I feel like I'm learning a lot and, uh, I, I certainly, have been finding this book more deeply moving in discussing it together with you guys even than I have before. I'm uh, going to make a bold prediction that I'm going to be a wreck by the time we get to the end of this book. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I will see you guys next week. Bye now.